I'm Jeff Cohen. Rabbi Mikey Albala is the Chief Development Officer for NCSY, helping raise money to support teens on their Jewish journeys. But his own path to observance stemmed from his family overcoming financial hardship and wanting to say thank you to Hashem for guiding them through tough times. Let's hear his story now. Rabbi Albala, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Jeff, thanks for having me. Let's take it right from the top in terms of where you were born and raised. Um, born and raised in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, New York. All right, so what was the Jewish community like when you were growing up? Like, what were your friends like? Where were they all holding? So the Jewish community in Sheepshead Bay was decent. It was a decent-sized Jewish community. My friends, actually, most of my neighborhood friends were from kids in yeshiva. Uh, we were a public school family. Is that because of how your parents were raised? Like, how did that decision come in terms of the kind of household they were running? What were their backgrounds? My parents were both raised, um, I'd say, traditional. Both went to shul, you know, growing up on Shabbat, but, you know, kind of stopped there. In terms of how we ended up as a public school family, so actually, my mother wanted to send us to yeshiva growing up, to day school. My father was, you know, kind of on board with it. They went to the local day school. My brother's the oldest. I'm the youngest of three. Um, So when my brother came of age to go to school, they went to the local day school to enroll him. And they asked for a scholarship. Uh, And and they were told, quote, uh, we don't give scholarship to kindergarten. That's called being a schnurr. And my father was very turned off. um, And my father said to my mother, we're going to send them to public school and our kids will do just fine. Did they understand that that decision not to put you in yeshiva was had kind of a related decision about how you were going to be raised in terms of the spectrum of conservative to orthodox? I would think those decisions are kind of connected. My parents' intention when they were raising us was not necessarily to raise us as orthodox Jews because they themselves didn't practice orthodoxy at the time. In fact, one of my father's hesitations with enrolling us in yeshiva was the idea of we're going to send them to yeshiva they're going to learn ABC, we're going to do XYZ, and that's a mixed message that we'd be giving over to our kids. Right, but at the same time, it sounds like your friends in the area and the majority of the community were Orthodox kids. You were still getting that exposure in terms of playing with them on Shabbos or starting to understand how they were living their lives. So what was that like for you growing up? In hindsight, it it totally wasn't even noticed. Meaning, obviously, I knew that my friends were from. I, I knew that they kept certain things that we didn't keep, but as much as I knew it, uh, the best words I can use to describe it, even though they don't make sense, are it wasn't noticeable. You know, there, there, there wasn't like a divide between us. I lived my life, they lived their life. We hung out on Shabbos. We played football together on Shabbos. We even, you know, at a certain point in time, I guess we'll, we'll get there at some point in the interview, we even davened in the same shul. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was just like, okay, so you keep Shabbos fully and I keep Shabbos partially. So let's get into that definition of keeping Shabbos partially. Like, what things were you doing within the home? Were you going to shul? Was the family keeping the home kosher? How were you celebrating the holidays? Like, what stuff were you doing? And I I guess it would have been falling short of maybe what someone who's fully Orthodox would have been doing. Growing up on Friday night, we made Kiddush, never on grape juice. It was usually on orange juice or soda, but we made Kiddush. There was definitely a Friday night Shabbat meal, Kiddush and Motzi, and, you know, uh, your your traditional Friday night meal. In my younger, younger years, oftentimes watching Channel 7 TGIF, Boy Meets World, during the meal, Shabbos morning, we went to shul. After shul, again, there was your traditional Shabbos lunch, and that was it as far as the shul going was concerned. 
And then in terms of what was kept of Shabbos, what wasn't kept of Shabbos, the cardinal sins were we didn't write on Shabbos, we didn't use fire on Shabbos, and we didn't get in a car on Shabbos. Could you walk to the movies? Like, could you do those kind of things? So no, because that would entail driving. We didn't drive and we didn't spend money. There was no business transactions allowed on Shabbos. So movies would be a no-go. I guess in theory, if I would walk to a movie theater and for some reason wouldn't have to pay, like if someone else was paying for me to go in, I would have had no problem going into the movies. So what, what did you think about this as a kid? I, I've interviewed people who are like, it was just my norm. Like, I didn't think about whether it was right or wrong or there were different levels. This is just what my family did. So it felt perfectly normal to me. Did it feel just normal to you as you were growing up? Yeah, absolutely. That's why, that's why my answer to your other question was the difference wasn't even noticeable. This was, this was Shabbos. Again, I, I, I understood that my friends did other things, but I didn't feel like I was doing less things. You know, like they were, they were just more machmir. <laughs> Right. You maybe didn't even know that word growing up. I, I certainly didn't know that word. I had to learn these terms later on. Definitely not. And you said your family went to shul. So was it a conservative shul or an orthodox shul or something kind of between the two? We started off in a conservative shul. And then there was an, an incident that resulted in my parents being sued by the practicing, I'll put the word rabbi in quotations. So we ended up switching to a modern orthodox, orthodox shul. But at the time, it wasn't because it was part of like a growth plan. It was more because you had this incident, you need to find another place and this was nearby or you were also like growing as a family at that point. No, it was definitely, definitely not a growth plan. It was literally just my parents got sued. So I don't know if you're comfortable sharing that story. Like what's the backstory to how this all played out? So when I was, I don't know the exact age, I'll, I'll ballpark it somewhere between seven and 10, I want to say. My father, Alva Shalom, was the vice president of the shul. My mother was the president of the sisterhood. And I think the shul actually had just hired a new rabbi. And there were certain, I'll say, oddities, you know, pertaining to this rabbi. I, I really couldn't go into more detail than that because I was too young. I just, I know from hearing the story. So my parents thought like something was strange here. And then there was a certain point where my parents called the institution on the rabbi's smicha to, I guess, ask whatever it was they were going to ask. And when they called this institution, the institution informed them that by no means had they given smicha because they're nothing more than a, you know, Jewish elementary school day school and don't have the authority to give smicha. <laughs> uh -oh. um, and when my parents confronted the, again, I put rabbi in quotations about this, he turned around and sued them for slander. Whoa. How does that play out? Um, so he sued them for slander. As a result, they left the shul and went to this other shul, which is actually where all my, my neighborhood friends were anyway. Ultimately, he lost the lawsuit because, fun fact, when you're impersonating a rabbi and you're you know, accused of, having, of doing so, it's not considered slander. <laughs> That's a lawyer 101, probably. Right. It's interesting as your story is starting to unfold how some of the decisions your family made were for very unusual reasons, like why you didn't go to a day school and why you changed shuls. It's not, it wasn't about growth. It was about like actual instances of things happening in those places that forced your hand and made you want to make different decisions. I, I love the fact that you say forced your hand because as you were pointing it out, I was going to say it's almost like we were you know, forced into each of these different scenarios. Did you have a regular bar mitzvah the way a conservative kid would have it or more... 
Orthodox? Like, what was? The, how would you describe the bar mitzvah? So by the time I was bar mitzvahed, we were already in the uh, in the modern Orthodox shul. So that that was my bar mitzvah. I learned I learned maftir. I read the haftarah, and that was it. But then you also said that your family was on their own journey. So I'd imagine beyond just these instances of things happening to your family, there was some kind of growth or some feeling of wanting to do more, or was there something that triggered it at some point? There was a trigger point. So when I was in junior high school, my father, Olav Shalom, had lost his job, and there was six-month financial hardship. Thank God, you know, at the end of it all, everything worked out. He got a different job. So my mother at that point said to my father, out of hakarat tov, out of appreciation, I think we should start to keep Shabbos fully. And I would say probably the fact that we were in this other shul probably impacted that idea. Meaning if we had still been in, in our original shul, I don't know that's what it would have come to mind to my mother. And as I always tell people, my father, being a good Jewish husband, said, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was what we started doing. So how old are you at this point? And did you feel like you had a say in this jump to kind of being fully Orthodox? Or were you just going along for the ride, like, because you're just part of the family and still viewed yourself as a minor? I think I was in ninth grade when the decision was made. I think me and my siblings all just went along for the ride. No one objected. Mm-hmm. Probably the fact that we grew up with these Shomer Shabbos friends, like, it wasn't such a crazy foreign concept to us. I remember in ninth grade being in one of the high school's, like, musical performances, and we performed on a Friday night. So obviously, I can't pick up a microphone and, and hold the microphone. That would be us, sir. But there was, in, in my mind, there was no problem with the idea of I'm going to stand on stage and I'm just going to talk. And if the microphone happens to pick me up, well, that's not me using the microphone. That's, that's the microphone using me. Now, I want to go into this idea of your family making this decision to become more observant. What did you practically do as a family? to like up your game in terms of going from maybe a conservadox type place to fully orthodox? Did you bring someone into kosher the kitchen? Did you start learning more about what the things were that you should be doing that you hadn't been doing before? Like how did your family practically advance? We didn't bring anyone into kosher the kitchen. We had always kept separate meat and dairy. So, you know, as far as we were concerned, our kitchen was kosher. At that point, really the major transition for us was this idea of keeping Shabbos fully. So again, that meant no more electricity on Shabbat. So I think we started going Friday night. It was also around the time of my bar mitzvah. So there were a lot of things in play that kind of just made it all come together. My mother went to like the women's parsha class or my father went to this class. You know, as I got bar mitzvah, I started going to some classes, but none of it was really like a basics on Judaism. That's what I was just going to ask you. As you mentioned, this started happening around the time of ninth grade. So you had been a public school kid up to that point. Did your parents change you now to a yeshiva for high school? You stayed in the public school system. Stayed in public school. Me and all my siblings went to uh, Talmud Torah growing up. So we knew how to read Hebrew. We knew how to daven. It's interesting, actually, that, you know, connection of NCSY. As a kid, I attended two... Shabbatons. And I remember actually at one of the Shabbatons, one of the NCSY staff or administration having a conversation with me as, as they often did with the public school kids about switching into yeshiva. And at the time, I was like, totally not interested. 
they, they were like offering this concept of, oh, and how about we'll put you in the yeshiva? And I was like, I'm good. Like, <laughs> I like my public school. I like my friends. You know, uh, I'm, I'm good with where I'm holding. So we, we you know, we, we didn't do that. And even as we became more observant, there was never an idea or a discussion of, oh, and let's go, let's go to yeshiva now. Um, I, I think we, we didn't feel that we were lacking anything in that area. Again, we, we had this Jewish foundation of knowledge. At that point in the journey, it was really just about we want to start keeping Shabbos fully. And so we're talking about the high school years. And in the pre-interview, you mentioned to me there's a story that happened to you in 11th grade that was also impactful. So can you share that story? So growing up, we always wore a yarmulke, but we didn't wear a yarmulke in school. Anywhere else we were, the yarmulke was on my head, even like my younger, younger years, always walking around with the yarmulke, just not in school. This summer going into 11th grade, I worked a two-week temp job in a hardware store in Manhattan. And I remember I walked out of my house in the morning to make my way to the train to go to the city. And as I got to my corner, I was approached by two teenagers. And of course, we weren't in school, so I was wearing my yarmulke. I was approached by two teenagers and I was mugged. The whole reason that I didn't wear a yarmulke in school was just because we weren't looking for conflict. And after that incident, after being mugged, I decided, like, this is ridiculous. Wherever I go in life, there's the potential for conflict. So I'm going to just not wear it in public school because I don't want it in public school. But here I was walking down the street and I got mugged. So I decided from that point on to wear a yarmulke in school as well, in, in public school. And in fact, as a result of wearing a yarmulke in public school, when I got called up for graduation in 12th grade, it was the teacher who called up my name for my diploma. We had a good rapport. And as a nickname in 11th and 12th grade, he used to call me rabbi. So <laughs> I actually, the first time, unlike this, this uh, imposter rabbi in my parents' original shul, in my case, when I graduated high school, that was my first time that I got smicha because I got called <laughs> up at my high school graduation as Rabbi Mike Albella. And so were you hurt when you got mugged? They just took your money? Like what, what actually happened? Thank God not hurt. You know, they uh, scared. And I remember one, one guy, like, I think grabbed my shirt and like, you know, held me in place so I, I shouldn't run away. They asked me, did I have anything? Of course, I lied and said no. He said, I'm going to search you. And he started like patting me down, took my wallet. And then once they had gotten like far enough away, of course, I ran straight back to my house. Um, actually, no, I didn't even have to run to my house. I remember a police car happened to come up the block. So I, uh, I flagged down the police and I was like, I just got mugged. And um, so the cool part of the story was I got in the backseat of the police car and we started driving you know, towards the projects. And one of the guys was actually standing outside a store holding my wallet in his hand. So I pointed <laughs> to that guy and I'm like, him, him, you know, he was one of them. So they pull up at the store and they, you know, they, they run out and they call to this guy. So I was like all giddy from this and then went down to the precinct, spent, I don't know, I guess a couple of hours in the precinct, whatever it was. And then somehow they got a lead on where the second guy was. So got in like an undercover car. We're driving around the projects. One of the cops gets out and he's like, as soon as you see him, you say something. And they got the second guy. So And you got your wallet back. No, never, actually. Um, they kept it for like evidence. And then, I don't know, I, I probably could like call the city of New York and get it back at some point, but never never got my wallet back. I think there's like 20 bucks in that wallet too, but. <laughs> you know what that would be worth with interest now? Right. <laughs> I don't think the city pays interest on this. <laughs> so let's now go post 
high school. So you graduate and now you have a chance to be away from home. Like up until this point, you're following what your parents are doing as they're making these changes. But I would think now that you graduate high school, you have a chance to make a few of your own independent decisions. So how does your story progress at that point? So graduate high school, go on to college, very happy with where I'm holding in life. And then go to Brooklyn College, get involved in Brooklyn College Hillel, join the, the local Jewish fraternity, so it's a national Jewish fraternity, you know, very involved. I would say the, the one shortcoming that I always felt was even though, yes, I had this group of Shomer Shabbos friends, a lot of my friends in high school and in college were not Shomer Shabbos, some of them not even Jewish. And they always had this perception of me. Again, I got called up at graduation as Rabbi Mike Albala. I was perceived to all these people as being this like super knowledgeable, super religious guy. And in reality, I had the basics of knowledge, but like I, I didn't feel that I had this insurmountable amount of knowledge. So that was always like, you know, something that kind of, let's say irked me, but you know, a shortcoming. So went to Hillel and it was at the end of the summer. I always wanted to go to Israel for the year because I always wanted to get this education. You know, so send an email to Rabbi Bragamov. Rabbi, I want to go to Israel for the year. I want 12 years of yeshiva education summed up into one. He writes back, okay, come into my office, let's talk. Go to his office and he's got two options for me. Or David, I'm not sure if Or David exists or not anymore, but at the time there was a yeshiva Or David and Or Sameach. Or David did not have a, a website, or Sameach did have a website. So I ended up in Or Sameach. So I applied to Or Sameach, I get accepted, go to Or Sameach. I arrived in Or Sameach on a Friday. My wife, my now wife, I was dating at the time, right? We were two teenage kids. We had started dating, actually started dating that summer. My wife arrived sometime later that week. I don't remember which day, sometime you know, later that week. I had never been away from home. I was so terribly homesick that Friday night, when I finished the meal, I went out onto my dorm room's balcony, took out my cell phone, and called my parents in America, who were not going to answer the phone because A, they're sleeping, and B, it's Shabbos. I just, I, that's how homesick I was. I, just, I, I needed to speak to my family. And I decided, I'm like, this is, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm not staying here. I'm, I'm like, why do I? And, and everyone was like, oh, you'll get over it. Like, it just takes a couple of weeks and you'll be fine. I'm like, what couple of weeks? Like, why do I need to suffer with being homesick? I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm like, I'll go back to Brooklyn. I'll join Yeshiva in Brooklyn and I'll learn in Brooklyn and it'll be fine. And all of my Rebbeim were like, no kid, it doesn't work that way. Like, you're gonna go back to Brooklyn. You're not gonna learn. You're... And I basically like went to see my wife, who again, for just for clarification purposes, was not my wife at the time. We were dating. Um, went to see my wife and I was, you know, hi, okay, I'm going back to America. Like. I'll see you in a year, and didn't even stay in yeshiva. Like I went to family that I have in Israel for the last two or three days because I just I, I needed to be around like, you know, comfortable surroundings. Got back to Brooklyn, and very quickly realized that all of the rabbim were a hundred percent right. It's not going to happen in Brooklyn. Yeah, there's a hundred yeshivas to choose from in Brooklyn, but like there's also all your friends and everything that you're familiar with and everything that you know, and you're just. You're not going to go sit in yeshiva. I mean, I don't mean any person. I'm saying in my case, I wasn't going to go sit in yeshiva all day, you know, and, and not just go back to my normal life. So that December, it was actually Hanukkah. I got back on a plane 
and went back to Or Sameach, and I was like, okay, like I'll, I'll suffer, I'll stick it out. And ultimately, <laughs> Rabbi Abragamov spoke at our wedding under the chuppah. My wife was and, and continues to be supportive. It was a bummer for both of us that like we thought we were going to end up spending the year together in Israel and not having to be miles apart. And in the end, so it ended up only being six months, right? But we thought it was now going to be a year that we weren't going to be thousands of miles apart. But, you know, she, at the same time, like she, she understood. I was unhappy. I was, I was homesick and she wasn't going to, you know, she wasn't going to say, oh, you have to stay here. So she, she understood and she supported it. And so when you go back to Israel, the fact that in the introduction I referred to you as a rabbi tells me you were a little bit more all in the second time you went back and committed. I don't think it would have worked out that you became a rabbi if you were going back again to kind of feel your way and see if this was really for you. So is that where you decide like, all right, I'm going to make this work no matter how I feel when I initially get there? Yeah. So so again, I left with the thought of I can pull this off in Brooklyn. I don't need to be homesick. It was at that point that I was like, no, I, I want more. I want this education. I want this knowledge. I want this growth. So I went back and this time I was all in. And it was, you know, it was, I'm, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to do it because I want this growth and I'm not going to get it in Brooklyn. And so clearly the relationship works out from everything that you're saying. You become a rabbi. And what happens with you professionally? So we know you're at NCSY. Like briefly, what are a couple of stops along the way as you start to figure out what you want to do professionally? I guess, again, it's an example of just, you know, Hashem forcing my hand, and I say that positively. Came back from Israel, and where my wife actually met is we worked at a day camp together. And when I came back from Israel, I had advanced into the administration of the day camp. So the way it would work was this day camp was yeshiva during the year, and then the week before camp started, they would flip it into a day camp, right? Put away all the yeshiva furniture and take out all the day camp furniture. And then the day after camp, the administration would come in and flip it back to a yeshiva. So we uh, were sitting around that day and the head counselor of the camp, who was also the youth director of the shul, was having a conversation with uh, a colleague in the camp and uh, he was convincing him to come coach his basketball league, you know, be one of the coaches in his basketball league in the shul during the year. So he turns to me and he said, you know, Mike, I would uh, I would tell you to come coach, but you know nothing about basketball. And I was like, yeah, no, I, I don't. So he said, you know what? NCSY had a, a chapter here. He said, I'm like, I don't know. I, I didn't think the advisor was so phenomenal. Like, why don't you reach out to NCSY and see if they'll hire you as a chapter advisor? And I said, OK. And I reached out to NCSY and I got hired as a chapter advisor. Later that year, my wife and I got engaged and married. And then right before we got married, the regional director, Rabbi Greenberg, had retired. A new regional director, Nachum Zak, came on board. I got you know, introduced to him and I was offered to come on board New York NCSY's administration. So I did. So let's advance to that part of what you're doing now in terms of the kinds of kids that you're interacting with? Are these public school kids, the day school kids? Is it, it a mix? And what kind of influence are you trying to have over them as they get exposure to Judaism? So I, I guess the, the short story of the, of the work journey is basically my role in NCSY had kind of morphed over my time, my original time there, into working on more of the business end. I had gotten into fundraising. At the time, New York and Long Island were two separate regions. They ended up merging New York and Long Island, and the way it worked was New York brought in the programming staff, Long Island brought in the business staff. Given that my role had morphed into more of a business staff role, there wasn't really a place for me in NCSY. 
at the same time, I had been offered to become the principal of the local yeshiva that I was working as a Rebbe in. So I left NCSY, became the principal of this yeshiva, did that for a few years until I really got more and more into, into development and, and started you know, working in different, various organizations as a fundraiser until last year when I was reconnected with New York NCSY and came back to run the development office there. As far as NCSY and what NCSY does and the teens that we work with, I like to describe NCSY as we strengthen the connection of teens to Judaism. And that that's across the spectrum. That's that's day school teens, that's public school teens, that's any teen. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going into public schools and we're having, it's called JSU clubs in public schools, and we're giving these teens kind of that fundamental education that, that I grew up, you know, having and wanting, you're teaching them about the, you know, the holidays and teaching them about Shabbat and teaching them these, but also, it's also showing them that like being an observant Jew or even just being a Jew isn't a negative thing, you know, like you don't, you don't have to perceive observant Jews or, or again, Jews in general as like, something that you don't want to identify with, but rather showing them like, hey, it's, it's cool to be Jewish, you know, and it's cool to be observant. It's about getting that teen to understand, don't take off the yarmulke, you know, so to speak, because you finish praying now. Want to be a Jew all day long. Go to shul, want to go to shul, want to learn, want to do all these things. And I've seen it, you know, throughout my career in NCSY, I saw it in my original career in NCSY, you know, the, the teens who grew that way. And, and I'm fortunate to see it now with the teens who grew that way. So given the fact that you're interacting with all these teens, before we wrap the interview, I just wanted to see, is there like one story, like one kid in particular that jumps out to you where they got that initial exposure to NCSY and you just saw them like take it to a really inspiring level? I'll tell you an awesome story. It's not a personal story, but it's an awesome story that comes to mind. There was a teen in Roslyn High School who attended our, our public school clubs and began to grow in Judaism. And wanted to go to Yeshiva in Israel. And he went to his parents when he graduated high school and he said, I want to go study in Israel for the year. And his parents said, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You're going to go to college, right? After college, you want to go and waste time and go to Israel? Okay, that's, that's your decision. But you're going to college, you're getting a degree, this is what you're going to do. And he tried and tried and tried and his parents wouldn't have it. So ultimately he went to college. And say a year or two later, his younger sister starts at Roslyn High School, and she starts attending the public school club there. And she also begins to grow in Torah and in Judaism. And she finishes high school, and she wants to go to Israel for the year, and her parents also say no, but they allow her to go on a summer program. And she calls her parents at the end of this, no, it wasn't even a summer program, she went with friends. She took a trip with friends to Israel, that her parents allowed. And she's having an amazing experience and she calls her parents from Israel and she's supposed to come back. And she says to her parents, change of plans. I'm staying here. I'm staying here and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to be in Israel for the year. And, you know, kind of like a, you can get behind it or not, but this is what I'm doing. So her parents had no choice at that point. They got behind it. Now her brother goes to the parents and he's like, hold on. I wanted to go to Israel. You said no. I had to go to college. I, I went. I went to college. She's in Israel for the year. Now I'm going to Israel for the year. Okay, fine. Fair is fair. We let your sister go. We'll let you go. So he goes to Israel for the year. The sister becomes very close with her madricha, with her dorm counselor, who is in the dating scene and looking for a husband. 
And the sister says to the Madricha, you know what? I have the perfect guy for you. And the sister sets the Madricha up with her brother. They end up getting engaged and getting married. This was, I think, I think last year they got married. So it's just like, it's, it's that whole full circle situation that just, you know, gives you goosebumps. I wonder what the parents would say now about the decision to finally cave and let the kids go and given like these dramatic events that happened once the kids got there. Right. Listen, I'll tell you the truth. Even from my own childhood, I know plenty of stories of teens who wanted to go to Israel and, and ultimately went and the parents end up, you know, being happy with the outcome. Right. And since you are the chief development officer at NCSY, I should at least give you a chance as we close the interview to say how people can find you if they're inspired by your story, how they can financially contribute to NCSY or how they can get involved with the organization. Sure. Um, you can find me via email at M, like Mikey, A, like Albala, at ncsy.org. More than welcome to reach out to me by phone, 212-613-8199. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, on Instagram. I think that's it. And so unlike your high school graduation, where they called you a rabbi, but it wasn't official, <laughs> I can officially say, Rabbi Mikey Albala, thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.